Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey, true crime friends. I'm Melissa. I'm Jeff. Today, I wanted to share a piece of history with you that's very close to me. Not only have I had a strong interest in it my entire life, I wrote a college paper on it about 10 years ago, but it's just a few cities over. My friends used to break into it when I was young, looking for ghosts. I was always too chicken to join them. I wasn't afraid of the ghosts, but, you know, just getting caught trespassing. I've always regretted never getting a peek inside. But in the last few years, they've started doing tours, and me and my friend Mandy have unofficial plans to go this October or November, as she loves to visit haunted places. Maybe we'll get to do a fun follow-up episode. Before we go into the episode, I wanted to let everybody know that you can go to our website at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com, and you can look into our Patreon. For everyone that joins our Patreon, we are having bi-weekly Wednesday episodes, and we are going to be doing a series on the history of execution. The first episode will be the history of beheadings. Chop, chop. It is super interesting. There is way more that goes into the history of beheadings than I definitely thought that there would be. And one thing that I can't believe is how much people really, really, really enjoyed attending them. It is almost equivalent to the gladiators of early Rome. People really, it was like the event of the summer. So join our Patreon to get the series on the history of beheadings. And thank you very much for your support. Back to the show. (laughs) Rooted deep into pure Michigan, today we're going to tell you the history of Eloise Psychiatric Asylum. Opening in 1830, Eloise wouldn't be just a psychiatric facility. It would serve as a general hospital as well and start as a poorhouse in Hamtramck, Michigan. The poorhouse residents were drunks, vagrants, vagabonds, pilferers, and brawlers. The building condition was deteriorating and they had overcrowding issues. In 1833, Asianic cholera killed many people and left numerous orphans in the facility. The overcrowding led to deplorable conditions. In 1839, Wayne County paid $800 for a 160-acre farm in Nankin Township, which is now known as Westland, Michigan. The land had been home to the Black Horse Tavern. Owned by the Torbert family, the tavern served as a stagecoach stop between Ypsilanti and Detroit, usually for people furthering on to Chicago down Michigan Avenue. Michigan Avenue was known as Old Chicago Road at this time and served as a main route there. This would be the perfect place to get the city's needy out of sight. When Wayne County purchased the land, they put an addition on the tavern, which would be used to house the residents of the poorhouse. It was April 1st of 1935 when 35 residents were transferred from the Hamtramck location to the new Nankin Township location. I'm not exactly sure how moving 35 residents solved their overcrowding problem, but they may have had some other solutions in place that I didn't come across in my research. Because most of the residents refused the move. They chose to stay in Hamtramck as the Westland location was described as being out in the wilderness, and they also wanted to avoid the two-day stagecoach ride. 
Now, hearing this is insane to me since I have lived near these two places my whole life and never had the opportunity to think of either as a rule. Today, Westland is a suburb of Detroit and has shopping areas and a population of over 81,000. We really take our commutes for granted as traveling between Hamtramck and Westland today is about 30 miles and would take you under 40 minutes. But two days on a stagecoach. Two days stagecoach. In the 1800s. (laughs) I would refuse that ride as well. (laughs) The hospital would remain in the Nankin Township westland location and still does remain there today at least what's left of it biddy hughes was said to be the first resident to the facility admitted for insanity Mm. in 1841 old biddy i looked for anything that would indicate something more something specific as to the reason that she was admitted but i was unable to find anything more than that she was in her mid-30s admitted by her family and would live out her remaining 58 years at the Wayne County Poorhouse, and is most likely buried at the facility's cemetery. That could be a field trip. Go look for Biddy's plot. <laughs> well, I don't think we would be able to find it. I'll, you'll find out why later. At the time, the mentally ill were kept segregated from the other patients. The poorhouse patients would reside in the old tavern building with the caretaker, and the mentally ill were placed in chains sent to the barn to reside in the loft above the pigs. Other homes in the area would complain that they heard shackles clanging and the insane hollering and pigs squealing all through the night. That sounds like a party. I picture it just like a party. (laughs) Just, you know, with less alcohol and more chains. Squeal, piggy. One resident was reported to be so dangerous that one person had to hold him down while another had to hold his neck to a wall with a forked stick to force feed him. Wow. You thought your kid was bad about eating dinner. Right. (laughs) To be honest, I think I would be pretty crabby, too, if, you know, the people and the pigs were keeping me up all night. I mean, you know, they were putting my neck to the wall with a forked stick. Time for dinner. Jeez. Get the stick. As more residents came to the facility, more buildings were erected. And in 1846, the first building was finished. It had two cells for drunks, violent residents, or the insane. The mental patients would remain in the barn until 1869, when the mentally ill were moved to a more appropriate building that had been built on the ground specifically for them, to the relief, I'm sure, of the surrounding homes. And probably to the pigs. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The poor pigs. But even in the new building, the chains would remain segregating the mental ill from the other residents until 1881. 1881 was the year that the facility got its first medical superintendent who came forward with a more humane approach. Dr. E.O. Bennett removed the shackles from the mentally ill. The breaker of chains. (laughs) (laughs) He would remain at Eloise until his passing in a car crash. His son, his junior, who had been a part of Eloise since he was a boy, would become superintendent of the tuberculosis division at Eloise in 1921. That sounds like an awesome job. Was the leper division already taken? (laughs) And the tuberculosis was the only one available? Maybe he liked to be outside. Good Lord. These were days when not much was understood about mental health, and asylums in general were not hard to gain entrance to. Honestly, if we had the same criteria today that we did then, I would be a candidate for commitment to one. 
Reasons to be institutionalized in the 1800s included, but were not limited to, hysteria, generally experienced by women. A woman's husband would often claim she was experiencing hysteria. Laziness. There was probably a high standard of work ethic in these times. I mean, some people were having children for the sole purpose of more hands on the farm. If you're not earning your keep, off to the asylum. Asthma. Not well understood by healthcare workers of these times, they felt this condition led to insanity. Having asthma didn't necessarily mean that you were insane, but it meant that you were at high risk of becoming insane. Not well understood? <laughs> I mean, you're at high risk of not breathing. <laughs> I mean, it probably did look scary at times when people were maybe having an asthma attack. Right, like the heavy gasping, I guess. Like, yeah. Maybe they thought it was like related to like hyperventilating when you're massively upset. I don't know. Epilepsy, which must have been ter a terrifying condition, not only for those experiencing it, but those witnessing it. Very misunderstood, it was the same basic reasoning as asthma. Epileptics were not insane, just prone to insanity. Jealousy. Husband cheating on you and you're angry about it? Don't worry, he'll just claim you're hysteric and experiencing jealousy and have you institutionalized. And bad treatment by husband. It's not clear if this was something put on the books to possibly remove women from an abusive household. And since they had nowhere to go, they were placed in the facility. Or if they viewed the wife as insufficient, resulting in bad treatment from her husband. This may have been an old form of victim blaming. Menstrual deranged. I would definitely have fallen into this category. I get moody. <laughs> so far we got you on like three out of seven. Desertion by husband. This may have been when they took a woman in because she could no longer afford to take care of her property. Imagine a life where your husband left you, and if you didn't make ends meet, to the asylum you went. I wonder how long after that burlesque was invented. Right, right. Gotta keep that land. <laughs> Get on the pole. Make, make ends meet somehow. Women in particular were institutionalized for behaving in ways that men did not agree with. They were considered the lesser sex. A woman's husband, brother, father, and even neighbor could take her in for things considered normal today, such as not having a menstrual cycle, depression after the death of a loved one, or even the use of abusive language. That's a broad range for broads. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> the quality of your life in those days really depended on if your husband actually loved you and wanted to keep you around for the long haul, or just kind of decided he wanted to get rid of you. It seemed like you would have to put on an image. Like, you definitely had to uphold the perfect housewife image. Otherwise, to on the, the stagecoach. <laughs> to the asylum you go. It was in 1894 that the poorhouse took on a new name, Eloise, after the Detroit Postmaster's daughter. The hospital had a few different names over the years, but this is the one that really stuck. When my mother was young, her classmates would taunt each other with threats of being sent to Eloise. You know, I think the name really, like, adds into, like, the lore of it around here. If it was, like, the Susan Psychiatric Hospital, <laughs> like, right. nobody would care. Right. But, Eloise, like, Eloise is kind like, of a creepy... It is. It definitely has, like, a, a, a strange connotation to it. The hospital eventually grew enough to be a, basically a small city. It literally had its own zip code as well as a post office, a 15-man police force, fire department, a railroad and trolley station, a laundry facility, bakery, cannery, 
Slaughterhouse, Amusement Hall, Theater, Powerhouse, A Dairy Herd, Dairy Barns, Piggery, Root Cellar, Tobacco Curing Building, and a 500-acre farm. In 1940, there were 56 cooks on site. There was even a schoolhouse on site and low-cost housing for employees. The complex consisted of 75 buildings that were connected by underground tunnels. So that's why they have the tunnels. I never knew that. Because everybody, that's what everybody was talking about was like the tunnels. Because that's how you got in. Right. Like so, you would access one of the tunnels from like the outer parts of the property. And I think that, too, Michigan has really bad winters, right? And especially in those days, I think they were probably yeah. worse. It seems to me over the years they're getting better. Um, so I think that probably they might have utilized those tunnels a lot during the winter. It was at one time the largest psychiatric facility in the U.S. There was at least one tunnel that ran under Michigan Avenue, or Old Chicago Road, that led to the cemetery that still sits overgrown. The grave markers simple slabs of stone with only numbers to identify the more than 7,000 people buried there. So going back to what we were saying earlier about finding Biddy Hughes' grave, I think it would be kind of difficult because we don't know what number she was. I think she's number one. She could be number one. (laughs) I guess it depends on if they're buried in order of death or in order of admittance. But we'll never know because it's only a number. The hospital erected a tent facility for the TB patients to get open-air therapy. Unfortunately, the patients were usually sent here in their last days, after they had exhausted their funds at other facilities. There were two tents for therapy, one for men and one for women. The TB tent facility would continue until 1923. And so I was thinking about this when I was thinking about like using the tunnels and the bad Michigan winters, and I just don't understand how they kept this tent facility up over the winter in those days. They couldn't have. It's a tent. <laughs> I mean, it gets cold, you know. Like they had to take it. They had to, they had to have their own like offsite or not offsite, but like other building to go Maybe. to. Maybe they just stuck them in the tunnel. <laughs> Who knows? During the Great Depression, the population of Eloise soared. They started housing for unemployed men as well as the mentally ill. There were more than eight thousand patients normally, and over fifty percent of them were mentally ill. At its peak, the population rose to 10,000. It was at this time that reports of questionable conditions began to surface. There were reports of patient abuse, deplorable living conditions, and neglect. In 1939, a Detroit news reporter described patients as staring at the walls and their feet. The facility was overpopulated and with nothing to do, a lack of physical and organized activity, The residents were bored. But in the future, that would change, and they would have a yearly carnival with patients running the booths and a patient-run coffee house. The goal would change from permanent residency to preparation for return to society. That would have been the social event of the year. The carnival? (laughs) The Eloise carnival. And, you know, I meant to ask my mom, like, if she remembers this, um, but I just, I feel like she would have already told me I didn't bring it up. That's crazy. I've never heard of that. That's crazy. Like, we need to work on our image a little bit here. I know. Let's get all the crazies out and have a carnival. And I couldn't find much on it. Like, I was wondering, like, was there carnival rides or was it just, like, booths set up, like, maybe with, like, games? I'm picturing a dunk tank. 
Right. <laughs> Maybe with like the the president of the uh, or the superintendent of right. the hospital. All the crazy people get to throw like tomatoes at it. <laughs> In 1945, they attempted to rebrand the hospital, changing the name to Wayne County General Hospital. Eloise became known for its new approach, including electroshock therapy, the lobotomy, and sensory deprivation. They also had music therapy. So your rebranding includes lobotomies. It was like the new procedure (laughs) of the times. And electroshock therapy. Like, what a great start. (laughs) I love how everything's a therapy, too. Like, hey, so what, is that the garden over there? No, that's the plant therapy. Right. Like, that's what that is. What about the, the, the tent, the open-air therapy, right? Oh, got it. Like, what, <laughs> what about those guys, like, doing painting the wall? That's uh, construction therapy. Right. <laughs> that's what we had going on over there. Like, what? <laughs> everything's therapy. In the 60s, they also started experimenting with brain chemistry, treating patients with pills and powders. And this probably had influence on some of the mental health treatments that we utilize today. After the closure of the hospital in 1982, it was said that you could find bits of brains and other body parts and fluids used for experimentation as well as documents outlining strange medical procedures in the tunnels and basements of the facility. There have been multiple reports of a woman dressed in white roaming the grounds. She's most often seen on upper floors and the roof of the buildings. People often report hearing eerie moans and screams of former patients when they tour the facility. Today, only about four buildings are left of the original 78, including the Cape Beard Building. In 2018, the city sold what is left to developers for $1. It seems that it is destined to become an affordable community for senior citizens. In the meantime, they are offering tours of what is left for $65 around October and November. And you can also reserve the facility for your paranormal team to have an overnight stay. I mean, they should have been doing this for years. Right. They could have been making a fortune off this place. And the tours sold out. I tried to get one last year, and they they sold out fast. I do have... A story I remember that I was told about this place. <laughs> um, a friend of mine was telling me that they went there uh, with a group of people and they were in the tunnels. And they met some dude riding around on a bicycle um, inside the tunnels, which I thought was a little weird. And uh, I guess this guy had like all kinds of information about the place. Like He knew everything. He knew where this tunnel went. He knew where that tunnel went. How it went to this building and blah, blah, blah. And so eventually they're like outside, like at the entrance to the tunnel. And there's like seven or eight people. And they're like backed up to a fence. And they're all like smoking a joint. And they're like in like a circle. And someone has a camera, like a video camera from back in the day, like a VHS, you know. And it's going, it's like following the joint to like each person. Like each person's like talking and the camera's following them. And the guy that they met in the tunnel is in the circle. So when they go back and watch this thing like years later... Like, the guy's not there. <laughs> it's like an empty space. And, like, the joint just skips him and goes, like, to the next person. Creepy. But, like, everybody remembers that dude being there. Well, maybe in October or November of this year, you can go with us. And we can take a tour. <laughs> we can see if we can find their old friend. The bike riding ghost. And why is the ghost woman always wearing white? Why is she never wearing plaid? 
or well, floral. Well, that's always my thing because I'm very, like, I'm a skeptic when it comes to, like, supernatural stuff like that, even though I really, really enjoy it. I always say, like, why are ghosts never gangsters? Like, nobody ever reports <laughs> gangsters. Hmm. It's always women in white. They're always wearing period clothing, no matter when they died. <laughs> What's she wearing? A floral kind of pattern with right. a bonnet. Really? That's weird. <laughs> well, that concludes our episode today on the history of Eloise. We hope that you enjoyed it. And watch for an update in October or November. Hopefully we will get a ticket to a tour. If you enjoyed our episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with visibility of our podcast. Also, if you could please hit subscribe, it would mean the world to us. You can find us on Instagram at Coffee Murder Mystery. You can look us up on Facebook. Our Twitter is Coffee Murder underscore, and we have recently gotten our own website. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or contributions, you can email us at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Stay safe, everyone. Evil people are everywhere. Tell somebody you love them. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, then you can go tell it to your diary. Or you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.